Before we start the show, we'd like to take a moment and share some unfortunate news. On March 3rd, Common Cause's beloved president, Karen Hobart Flynn, passed away surrounded by her family. Karen once said, My dream is to live in an inclusive democracy that lives up to its promise. We must not yield to cynicism that says we can never improve. All of us at Common Cause are heartbroken by Karen's passing, but we will carry on her legacy and together we can fulfill Karen's dream. If you'd like to read Common Cause's official statement on the passing of Karen Hobart Flynn, we will include the link in the show notes. Thank you. The state of California is the most populous state in the nation and has the nation's largest economy. It produces more fruits and vegetables than any other state, the most technology, and the greatest share of entertainment and media. And in our humble view at Democracy Is, it is the most gorgeous of all this nation's 50 states, with unmatched coastline, mountains, and old growth forests. But California is also the best, most greatest at something less well-known. California is home to the nation's largest number of limited English-speaking residents. The percentage of California households that speak a language other than English at home is double the national average. There are approximately 200 languages spoken in California, and it is projected that by 2030, 66% of the state's population will be a person of color. All of this diversity is celebrated in popular culture and embraced by politicians, but being limited English speaking makes it harder to find work, access services, and participate in our democracy. This impacts California families in millions of ways. For example, a family might have an English-speaking child who goes to school conducted in English, but the parents who are limited English-speaking can't engage meaningfully with their child's teacher. And more and more language communities are projected to become linguistically isolated. Seniors, who are the fastest-growing demographic, are projected to work longer, become more diverse, and be more likely to live alone. This isolation impacts a person's ability to participate civically and access services. The state has made headway in the realm of language access, and to many, the state's voting laws are already seen as a model for the rest of the nation. But as the state's language diversity continues to grow, and the need for true and accurate information becomes vital to keep everyone informed and to fight against mis- and disinformation efforts, the question becomes, Will more and more Californians find themselves locked out of our democracy by language barriers, living without information about candidates and policies that impact their lives? Or will California become the nation's first truly multilingual democracy? I'm your host, Alexandra Leal, and welcome to season two of Democracy Is, a show by California Common Cause dedicated to highlighting the work that has been done, the progress that must be made, and reminding us all that there is always hope for an equitable democracy. For this season's premiere, we will discuss the history and future of language access in California elections and the struggle to make California the nation's first multilingual democracy. As we tell this story, listen for how critical good data is. Something that sounds so boring is so, so important in trying to provide a voting experience in the languages that our immigrant communities speak. In order to understand how language access laws work, 
we need to look back, and it's not pretty. Since 1894, California's Constitution required that all voters be able to read the Constitution and write their name in English. When the California Supreme Court struck down that law in 1970, it noted that fear and hatred of immigrants played a key role in the passage of that English literacy test. But the Voting Rights Act of 1965, maybe the most effective civil rights law in the nation's history, did not provide protections for limited English-speaking immigrant voters until 1975, when Congress enacted something called Section 203. Section 203 of the Voting Rights Act requires that counties provide election material to specific, quote-unquote, language minority groups that meet specified size thresholds. Under Section 203, a language minority includes speakers of Spanish, Asian languages, Native American languages, and Alaskan Native languages. If 10,000 citizens of voting age in a language community living within one county have low literacy rates and do not speak English very well, according to the census, federal law requires that the county elections office provide all election materials, including ballots, translated into the language spoken by that language community. The same is true if the citizens of voting age in a language community within one county amount to 5% or more of the citizens of voting age in the county overall. In 1976, California began to require that Spanish translated reference ballots for state races be posted on the walls of voting sites. These reference ballots are called facsimile ballots. Facsimile means exact replica. As a voter, you could take the English ballot you had to vote with over to the wall and hold it side by side with the translated facsimile ballot on the wall. Imagine walking into a restaurant where you don't speak the language, but they have an English version on the wall. If you want to use it, you have to get up from your seat, go to the wall, then go back to your seat and struggle through ordering in a language you don't speak. But it was worse than that. There were no translated signage telling voters these translated ballots were available. And poll workers rarely knew what they were and sometimes didn't even bother putting them up. Doesn't sound super user-friendly, does it? And yet, despite some twists and turns, the facsimile ballot is a part of California elections even today, 50 years later. In 1982, California began to narrow these post requirements for Spanish and required that the need for posting these reference ballots be determined on a precinct basis by the Secretary of State. It was a sign of things to come in a much more conservative California than the one we know today. During the 1980s, economic demands brought many immigrants to California. During this time, English-only groups like the Committee for Ballots in English began to gain traction in California. In 1984, the group placed Proposition 38 on the ballot, a declaration that didn't create law, but encouraged lawmakers to make election materials available only in English, and the measure passed. In 1986, these English-only groups placed Proposition 63 on the ballot, which declared English the official language of California. This measure also passed. But the law didn't limit the ability for California to provide language materials to voters. It was symbolic and a signal to non-English communities to encourage them to learn English or leave. More recent attempts to explicitly limit language access have failed, including 1996 legislation, which would have prohibited the printing of election materials in languages 
other than English. But what about the protections for limited English-speaking voters contained in federal law that we mentioned earlier? How were they implemented in California? Honestly, not well. Yes, counties were mandated to provide language assistance, but implementing those changes actually required the Department of Justice to bring legal actions against several California counties to get them to comply. In 2017, California advocates decided we could do better. They pushed for changes to the way those reference ballots, which were called facsimile ballots, are provided to the voters. Remember our earlier menu example? Up until this point, voters who wanted to use the reference ballot had to visit the location of the translated ballot to compare it, which also did not provide voters with the type of privacy we would want. These efforts were successful. In 2017, the governor signed the California Voting for All Act, which now requires that translated reference ballots be posted in a conspicuous location in the voting place, and that at least one reference ballot be available in loose leaf for voters to use with privacy in the voting booth. The law also required a translated sign telling voters that the translated reference ballots were available and required that counties train their poll workers on the subject. This new law was a move in the right direction, but was it good enough? We'll talk about that later on. In the 1970s, when many language access laws were written, lawmakers had specific language groups in mind, Hispanic, Asian, and native languages. However, since that time, the nation and California has become more diverse. Global conflict, settlement, and workforce demands have meant that immigrant communities from Africa, the Middle East, and many other parts of the world can be found all over California. Today, as mentioned, more than 200 different languages are spoken in the state. Unfortunately, language access in the state has not been updated to reach these growing communities. And a 2019 court decision declared that California's own language access laws only apply to the federally recognized language groups and thus do not cover communities who speak Somali, Arabic, Ukrainian, and so on. Last year, California Common Cause moderated a panel on the state of language access at the Future of California Elections Annual Conference. The conference, which brings together election administrators, officials, and advocates, focuses on a range of issues related to elections. The panel featured organizers with PANA, the Partnership for the Advancement of New Americans. Here's a clip. So again, my name is Hamaira Yusufi. I am with the Partnership for the Advancement of New Americans, PANA. Um, we are an organization located in San Diego, and we work to advance the full economic, social, and civic inclusion of refugee communities in San Diego, throughout the state, and across the country. Our organization is led and founded by refugees and immigrants, and we work to build community power in a really culturally literate manner. Language access is not necessarily like one issue for us. It is ingrained in so much of the work that we do because we recognize for refugee communities, you know, newcomers and those who have been here for a while as well, that um, not having access to language services really makes it difficult for them to engage in society. As it relates to our civic engagement work, this has become such a crucial part of the work that we do and that we advocate for. And how PANA involves the community directly in their work is also quite remarkable. 
our organization works really deeply ingrained within our community. All of our policy priority issues that um, we create is developed from the community and with the community. So what that looks like for us is every two years, we do a survey of over 500 refugee communities, understanding the issues that they're facing. And then through a series of house meetings, really determine what filters up as the priority issue areas. And again and again, you know, we do hear from our community how language access is such a huge problem for them as it relates to everything from voting to going to the DMV to get, you know, driver's license to all sorts of other issues. And so for our communities, I think that this continues to be something that we think about structurally as to what are the challenges for refugee communities. We're really, really diverse, right? We're multi-ethnic, we're multi-region. Right. And so we are also lost in the census counts. If you are from the Middle East or North Africa, you're generally considered white within the census. Right. So even if you have numbers that are significant, as we do in San Diego, that would reach or surpass these um, threshold levels, we, we can't capture them in the census. Right. So it makes it really, really difficult for us to advocate their um, for language access and for black immigrants is similar. So, you know, a lot of times they're, they're marking black, but you know, that doesn't then capture the language that they are, that they speak and would need. Even with recent advancements in voting access, many communities are still finding themselves left out of the logistical planning. In 2021, our board of supervisors decided to transition from local polling sites to vote centers. And what we recognize is that this could be a huge problem for um, our refugee communities in San Diego. This was going to significantly reduce the number of polling sites up to 90%, I believe, right? And so as it relates to language access, usually I know for my family, right, when it's time to vote, my, my parents call me up and we walk down the street. <laughs> I help them vote. I translate for everything for them. And, you know, that that's what we've been doing since I was a kid, right? And now this transition to vote centers made the, you know, a lot more challenges. Now they had to drive to a place that they're not familiar with. Right. Um, and while there was more um, time to do that, I know for my parents, like they, they don't think about it until it's election day oftentimes. Right. So um, it's oftentimes up to us to kind of like educate them and inform them. And we saw that really within the community as well. And so we got together with many of our um, community partners, including Common Common who's been providing a ton of technical assistance um, to create a San Diego County Vote Center strategy and monitoring table. And essentially what this was, was, you know, 20 organizations, civil rights, advocacy organizations, ethnic-based organizations that came together to really um, make sure that this transition to Vote Center engages and centers diverse communities um, who are low income, have disabilities, are new Americans, use public transportation, and our limited English proficient speakers. And the group came together to prioritize what, what's what's the most important things. Um, some of it was making sure that there was adequate funding for outreach, right? The other issues was making sure that there was increased access to voters on parole. And the third one was really about language access and increasing language access. And the group decided to utilize and focus in on Somali speakers because this is a historic community in San Diego, but one that currently doesn't receive 
any translated materials or anything as it relates to voting. And so this was really a case study that if we could increase for this community, we could also do it for the many, many other um, populations that PANA serves, but also many of our community organizations serve. Just a little bit for folks who might not be familiar with the Somali community in San Diego, um, it's estimated that from community estimates that there's over 25,000 Somali speakers just in the city of San Diego. Um, They're the second largest Somali population in the United States second to Minneapolis. And so, you know, this is a really large population in San Diego. However, when we look at census data, this has not really been represented. As many of you know, there's this threshold of like 10,000 individuals that need to be within that. And that hasn't necessarily been the case for Somali speakers. We haven't been able to determine that. However, through advocacy and through some research and digging with Common Cause and others, we found that, you know, we can actually find that there's about 9,000 938 limited English proficient Somali speakers in San Diego. And if you account for the margin of error, that goes up to about 13,000. So, you know, even within the numbers, we could find that. However, because of limitations within federal law, Section 203 languages does not include languages that are African. And so even if we could prove that, okay, we're over this limit, that doesn't mean that the laws have changed and shifted to to include languages, that Somali is not one of those. With this data and testimony, organizations like PANA can understand the full scope of the issue and better yet, effectively strategize around it. So we really had to focus on local advocacy, right, to convince um, our ROV that this is a language that should be included. And what we decided to push for was for facsimile ballot. You know, this is this is the first step for us, right? Within that, we understand that the actual votable ballots is the ideal goal, but right now we're starting with nothing. We engage with the ROV, you know, writing a letter um, as the table, letting them know that this is a population that's a priority for us. Um, and we're informed that it was a budget issue, like they wanted to provide it if possible. However, that it, it wasn't in the budget that the Board of Supervisors has had passed. And so much of the advocacy we did, you know, was within the implementation plan. So once the Board of Supervisors made this transition, the ROV came back with a plan and we recognized that Um, There needed to maybe be some additional funds put in specifically for this. And so we advocated with the Board of Supervisors to include the $20,000 and we got a commitment from one of our from our board chair saying that, hey, you know, we can we can make that work. And that language access is a priority um, for the Board of Supervisors as well, which was great to hear that there was that commitment. And I think, you know, for, for folks, you know, Arcella's in the room here. So <laughs> for folks who've been doing language access for a long time, you know, that's a long time coming. There's a long time that we've been ask, asking for these things and um, weren't able to receive them. But, you know, seeing that now our advocacy to create like a language access coordinator at the county level to actually, you know, create a plan, right, of how we're going to, um, provide language services to San Diegans at the county level outside of just um, voting is finally moving along and we're seeing some movement in that. Um, We were excited to see this as well, um, that there is that there was this commitment. And so now, you know, we're in that implementation phase. And I always say say like implementation is really where like, what does it say? The 
the rubber meets the road. <laughs> For many of these efforts, a win is just the beginning of the arc towards success. So, you know, we're trying to figure out the actual way, you know, how, do, how does this work? How do we provide facsimile ballots? What are the next steps, right? So we've been doing a lot of the research as to like, if we wanted to do votable ballots, you know, what would that look like in our region? and learning um, what some of these limitations are. So, you know, some of the things we're learning is in San Diego County, they don't have the certification to print votable ballots um, with, with letters that are connected. So for our advocacy with Arabic, that's a huge issue, or Dari, because those are all connected letters, right? I think the, some of the other challenges we're recognizing in terms of language access for broad communities um, but specifically Somali is also how important it is to work with like community-based organizations that understand the languages spoken in that region. So when we did, um, we hosted a community education event around vote centers um, with the ROV. One of the things that we recognized was that the ROV was unwilling to actually utilize a community translator because they wanted to utilize their own. And so it ended up being, you know, because of COVID and because of the communities that we work with, like doing this online um, is not an option. People, that's like just been something that's been really, really difficult, especially for our elders to be able to come to an online event. So we've had most of our events throughout the pandemic in person, but outside. So imagine an, you know, in-person outside event with 45 to 50, you know, Somali elders sitting there and then they have a like a phone <laughs> that's translating and not only that we had a community interpreter present at the event and their RV did not actually allow us to use our community interpreter and the person who's interpreting was from out of San Diego probably out of state and the dialect they were speaking was just impossible to understand Right. And so, you know, that was a lesson learned and we really had to advocate for why is it so important for us to actually get interpreters that, um, you know, are from the community that speak the dialect of that community. Um, when you're translating materials, I know Sarah and I were talking about that sometimes, you know, when the county is going to translate something, if they just use whatever translator, you could use Google Translate or whatever. That doesn't mean we're going to actually be able to understand it. Right. There's so much diversity within our communities, but usually people, you know, who come to one area, there's other folks who come from that one region. And so you, if you're working with community-based organizations, you get that wealth of knowledge and you make sure that your outreach is actually going to be effective and accurate. This struggle to ensure all language communities can access the ballot equally was recently complicated further when the United States Census Bureau began withholding certain demographic information from its data because of recently implemented privacy policies. For the purpose of identifying election precincts that were home to specific language communities, it was unusable. The result? The number of languages in California dropped from 27 to 10. Advocates, including California Common Cause, rushed to action and wrote to the Secretary of State demanding that the office use its discretionary authority to reinstate prior included languages, which it did. But that is just a temporary fix. So to tell us more about where language access is now, we interviewed Deanna Kitamura, a longtime voting rights attorney and language access expert who now works with Asian Americans Advancing Justice, Asian Law Caucus. 
Hi, Deanna. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Democracy Is. We are so grateful to have you. Well, thank you for inviting me. I am a big fan of California Common Cause. Oh my gosh. We love to hear it. (laughs) Um, So we would love to know, just to start out, With all of these new census policies at the federal level, what are the issues we need to resolve in order to help identify language communities? Well, there is a big issue because the U.S. Census Bureau has adopted a new policy that suppresses data at small geographic levels, like census tracts. They say they are doing this for privacy reasons. Uh, This is relevant to language access because state law requires that translated reference ballots uh, be be used when a language community reaches 3% of voting age population in a precinct. And precincts are very small levels of geography. And so when the Census Bureau suppresses that data, you don't get an accurate picture of the small communities. And, and oftentimes those small communities, it doesn't show up that they've reached the threshold even if they have because the data is suppressed. Data is super important when you're dealing with language access because under both federal and state law, you, groups only receive translated materials if they hit a threshold. And that threshold is determined by, well, right now it's determined by the U.S. Census Bureau. Section 203 of the Federal Voting Rights Act provides comprehensive language assistance to language groups when they hit a certain threshold. And that threshold is either 10,000 citizen voting age population in a county or 5% of that of the county uh, limited English proficient voters uh, citizen voting age population. Uh, So again, when that threshold is hit, then essentially everything is translated. Under state law, the state, as I indicated earlier, so when a community reaches 3% of the voting age population in a precinct, then what's provided is a sample reference ballot. And so that's why your question about data and what needs to be resolved in terms of the census policies is a very important one. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Now, is that why only certain languages qualify for language assistance in California? So there's two reasons that only certain languages qualify. The first one is that, as I mentioned, that they have to hit that threshold. The second one is that the federal Voting Rights Act specifically says that it only applies to four categories of languages, Spanish, Asian languages, Native American languages, and Native Alaskan languages. And unfortunately, an appellate court in California ruled that those same limitations exist in state law, even though when you read the state statute, it doesn't read like there's any sort of limitation. So those are the two reasons why you see limitations and who gets language assistance in California. And who are the language communities that are currently not covered in California? Oh, well, there are quite a few. So like I mentioned, the ones that are covered are Spanish, Asian Asian languages, Native American languages, Native Alaskan languages. So any other language that does not fit in those four categories, they are not entitled to language assistance. Now. Counties can provide voluntary coverage, and some do, and sometimes cities provide voluntary coverage, but it's not required under state law. So it's just, it's a choice on whether or not the county wants to do it. Uh, For those other languages, yes. And that really impacts a lot of communities. So we all know that there's a lot of refugees that that are coming in, right? So we see that Somali doesn't fit under one of those categories. Ukrainian doesn't fit. And neither do other communities like Arabic-speaking communities, 
the Armenian community, they, under state law, are not entitled to language assistance unless the county voluntarily provides it. So it doesn't matter how large they get, the state law is not has been interpreted so that are not covered. Wow. And there's a complication because some counties have voluntarily covered languages not in those four categories, and then the Secretary of State has adopted those languages as being required. But that's because those counties already voluntarily cover it. Gotcha. Um, now, depending on where a person lives, they might be voting in a Voter Choice Act county. What does language access look like in those counties? So the Voter Choice Act allows counties to adopt um, a model of voting different than neighborhood precincts. So it's where voters can vote anywhere in the county at one of the vote centers. And those vote centers are open for more than just on election day. But the state language access law was created before the Voters Choice Act and is precinct based. So when a language community reaches that 3% threshold that I mentioned, then they are entitled to those translator reference ballots that are posted at the precinct and available to take into voting booths with them. But under the BCA, each vote center must have all those different translated precinct level ballots available. Now, some counties provide a binder of every single precinct level ballot that's translated. And then other counties have developed what is called a translated composite ballot. And that is a ballot, they translate every contest in the entire county. And so every contest in the entire county is in this binder. And then it's up to the voter to to find the school board race that they um, that's on their ballot, on their English ballot, and try to figure out how to vote. And then they have to turn through this binder, flip through the binder, and find the city elections, and then break it down by district. And so they have to figure out which district applies to their ballot, where, you know, they have to look through this entire binder to figure that out. We did some listening sessions. We're part of a work group, a language access work group um, with California Comcast, and we conducted seven listening sessions in six languages and we found that the participants were very confused by the composite ballot. They're a great idea on paper and we applaud what the counties are trying to do, trying to make it so that language access is available regardless of which precinct a voter lives in, but the actual way it works seems to be confusing to at least the participants in our listening session. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine how big that binder must be. That must be a really tedious process. Yeah. Um, wow. So next question. In 2020, uh, California began to send all voters a ballot by mail. And California requires that translation materials be posted at voting sites. So how has that change impacted how language communities receive information? Yeah, uh, so we found, well, first of all, we think that it's great that voters receive their program ballot in the mail, but it's confusing. We found that through the listening session that voters sometimes were confused as to why they were getting a ballot in the mail because they were not provided the information as to what was going on in their language. And they didn't necessarily understand that what they were receiving in the mail was an actual ballot. And as you mentioned, in California, the materials, the translated materials under state law have to be posted. And yet we're now seeing more vote-by-mail voters. They're either voting by mail or they're dropping off their vote-by-mail ballot at drop boxes or just dropping them off at the vote centers. And so they're not being able to take advantage of those materials that are posted at the at the vote centers. So they may ne never even know that those materials exist because in the past, when we were voting at 
neighborhood precincts, you would see the translated facsimile ballot posted. And so even if a voter did not know they were entitled to those materials, they would see it and say, oh, I can use this. But now they don't even have that chance to necessarily see it if they're not going into the vote center. Mm. So Deanna, in your opinion, what else is necessary for voters to feel more included? Well, we can provide more language materials to voters, translated language materials. So we know that, as I mentioned, under federal law, once a community hits that threshold, they are entitled to essentially everything. Everything is translated. And that includes votable ballots. It includes a voter information guide. Those materials should be provided, could be and should be provided to other language community groups. As an example, we would like to see more translated votable ballots. In LA County, they are required to provide translated votable ballots in six languages because those languages are covered under federal law. But LA County voluntarily provides translated votable ballots in the other 14 languages that, that are covered under state law. And that's a, a great example of what voting should look like. Wow, 20 languages, that's, that's a lot. Go LA County. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Until 1970, California had an English literacy requirement for someone to be eligible to vote. I bet a lot of people don't even know that. So citizens who could not read the U.S. Constitution in English were not allowed to register to vote. That was in our California Constitution. And that was found unconstitutional by the California Supreme Court in 1970. And so we had an English-only requirement until then, and only until 1975 when the federal Voting Rights Act was passed, uh, the Section 203 of the Federal Voting Rights Act, did we have any language assistance at all in California or anywhere, probably out anywhere else in, in the country? I think that's like important for people to know that 52, 53 years ago, we required people to speak English. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially considering how language diversity and language has kind of always been a part of California's story in a way. Right. And in our development, Definitely. there's always been more than English spoken here. Even before California was California, <laughs> we were speaking non-English languages. Yeah. And so when I mentioned was that Section 203 was passed initially in 1975, and then California passed the Language Access Statute in 1976. But California is far more diverse now. We have 200 languages that are spoken in this state. And so this the scheme that was created in 1976 should not, it does not fit how we vote anymore, right? It doesn't fit in terms of the number of languages that are covered, and it also doesn't fit in terms of all of the reforms that California has has adopted in the past few years. You mentioned the, the vote by mail, as well as the vote centers, right? That countywide idea of voting makes it so that the precinct-based language assistance that we provide no longer fits the countywide voting that we currently do. Despite the fact that there has been increased movement to propel language access forward in California, it has not been able to keep up with the changes to California's elections. As Californians transition from precinct-based neighborhood polling places to mail-in ballots and vote centers, which serve the whole county, these precinct-level supports are no longer aligned with the voters' experience. California's language access protections for immigrant voters are increasingly ineffective and outdated. In the face of such challenges, advocacy groups can have a huge role in helping to aid and protect minority language communities. At California Common Cause, we have a proud history of protecting language access. 
This year, we are working with advocates on new legislation, AB 884, that would address and resolve many of the issues raised on this show and would expand the list of languages that qualify for language access in the state. We are also working with our partners to develop policies, best practices, and ensure outreach is conducted to reach language voters. Other states have sought out their own approach. In Oregon, language access laws have been created so that the Secretary of State must publish a list of the five most commonly spoken languages in the state, as well as in each county, and go beyond the list of languages provided under the Federal Voting Rights Act. The threshold kicks in for language communities once they reach 100 individuals. Furthermore, translations of the voter guide are provided for, quote unquote, each language that has previously been listed by the Secretary of State, even if the language is not included in the most recent list, end quote. Grandparenting in language access for communities whose populations are shrinking but maintain need. The requirement of only 100 individuals per group not only puts federal law to shame, but California law as well. And in 2020, Michigan created a language access task force that aimed to address accessibility barriers with proactive voter engagement. The task force emphasized outreach and hosted statewide events in multiple languages that are then accessible online after being translated for a variety of language communities. The state of Michigan also now offers in-language ballots in Arabic, a first in the nation. Some of these programs are similar to what we see in California, but we can also see some clear improvements in our system, even as simple as the inclusion of the Arabic language, which California has yet to accomplish. Because California is much bigger and more diverse than these states, it's even more crucial that we learn from their successes and continue to improve our own language access laws. Updated language access laws not only looks great on paper, but it can have a profound impact on voters from language minority communities. For voters that don't speak English well, the inability to engage with election materials can have devastating impacts. It can mean an inability to vote or an ability to know what you're voting on. It can mean the voting process takes much longer and is much harder. Ultimately, this can mean disenfranchisement or unequal access to the ballot. This furthers racial disparities in the state and nation as these minority communities are unable to politically advocate for themselves. With no voice in the political arena, their needs will not be met or even addressed while the needs of English speakers who can freely cast their ballots are prioritized. Language access advocates goal is to help communities that cannot speak English well, the communities many of us come from, regain their political autonomy and thus their self-determination. Thank you for listening to the Democracy Is podcast presented by California Common Cause. We hope you enjoyed our show and we hope that you're just as excited as we are to hear more from season two. Research, writing, and editing was done by our team, which includes Maya Chupkov, Pedro Hernandez, myself, Alexandra Leal, and our stellar interns. We would also like to thank our former intern, Ashika Cernivas, and our current intern, Leili Milani, for their work on this episode. A huge thank you to Hamira and Deanna for sharing their experience and expertise with us. If you'd like to learn more about the work California Common Cause does, how to get involved, 
or if you'd like to donate to our work or this podcast, please visit www.commoncause.org forward slash California. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Thank you.